Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Welcome back to my podcast. Today, I have the pleasure to interview John Kogan, a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He is an expert in the study of fiscal and budgetary policy. And interestingly, on this podcast, we've never really covered government spending, which I always have been kind of not confused, but I always look at it and I'm like, why? Like, what? Why is it like that? So I'm excited to talk about it today. Um, it's I feel like it's incredibly important, but it's somewhat overlooked on this podcast in general everywhere. Um, even before the pandemic, the accumulation of spending and of the debt was spectacular. Today, the debt is close to $27 trillion, over 100% of GDP, and deficits are in the trillions of dollars. We're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about one reason why this happens, which is what he talks about in a book that he wrote called "The High Cost of Good Intentions: A History of the U.S. Federal Entitlement Programs." Welcome. Well, thank you, Juliet. It's a uh, pleasure to be on your podcast. Before we jump right into that, I want to ask you something I ask all my guests, which is. What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Well, that's a, a mighty hefty question. <laughs> and I don't pretend to, uh, to know what should be uppermost in uh, young uh, individuals' minds. But I can tell you, for me, in my lifetime, the major lesson that I have learned is the importance of striving to achieve excellence. It is far more important in life to strive to achieve excellence and that actually achieving a particular goal is far less important than the striving. And my thinking on this is that each of us has a gift. Each of us has a unique characteristic or set of characteristics that makes us special. And the rewards in life come from striving to find your unique gifts and to use them to achieve what is good for you or to achieve what I call excellence. And so this applies to all aspects of life. It applies to your education. Try to achieve excellence there. If you're in athletics, strive to achieve excellence. Raising a family, which will come down the road, strive to achieve excellence. And of course, in your career, try to achieve excellence. You will find that this effort or this journey is very important and that the actual 
uh, award that you might receive, reward that you might receive, promotion, uh, um, winning some contest, that those are just icing on the cake and that the real joy of life and the real satisfaction in life is coming through that striving uh, to achieve uh, excellence. So that's my thought for you. That's, I like that. That reminds me a lot of Adam Smith's loveliness and how he would talk about how we should strive to not only look lovely, but to, or wait, I don't remember the exact quote, but not only to look love. Yes, it's look lovely, but to be loved also. No, it's the reverse. Sorry. I'm it's caught up in my brain. You know. <laughs> no, I, think, I think you're right. I think it is, uh, it is important to love and it is important to be loved. And, you know, if you think about um, actually winning a contest or uh, winning a race or winning a football game or winning a volleyball match, um, it's, that's a reward that somebody else is giving you in some sense, right? And the long years of striving and of preparation uh, to get you to the point where you can win is really where the rewards are. That's what builds self-satisfaction. That's what builds uh, dignity uh, and pride. Uh, and the moment that you win the award, of course, that's important. It's uh, someone else conveying a uh, uh, that you have succeeded, uh, but that's an external conveyance. Uh, internally, um, you're getting uh, the pride and the self-satisfaction from within yourself. I think it's important for everyone to think about, every individual, to reflect on themselves and to evaluate themselves based on their motivations and their values. Why did I do this? Why did I do that? What did I get out of this experience? How can I grow from this? I think it's really important, and I've tried to do it as I've grown up. I mean, I'm still really young and I haven't had that much to reflect on, but I'm trying. Let's get into your book. In my AP Gov class in 10th grade, I learned that there are two parts, the mandatory side where entitlement programs live and the discretionary side. The mandatory side is over 68% of the budget. It became a majority of the budget in 1991, growing from 30% of the budget in 1962. So my first question to you is, What's the difference between entitlement programs and the rest of the programs in the federal budget? Well, entitlement programs usually um, convey a right to receive some assistance from the government based upon your uh, demographic characteristics or your economic situation. And so certain programs like Social Security give individuals the right to receive a check from the United States government each month when they turn age 66. So that's a demographic requirement. Poverty programs, on the other hand, provide assistance to individuals because their income falls below some threshold that the government has established. Uh, and the person gets those benefits um, because of their economic uh, circumstances. When a person becomes unemployed, they receive those benefits by right of law um, because uh, their income has fallen. Um, there's an important difference between 
the entitlement programs, and the rest of the budget. So in the rest of the budget, Congress says, we wish to build a road from Fresno, California to San Francisco. And they set aside a particular amount of money in advance for that program. So Congress knows how much it's going to spend in a year. Now, it may be the case that the, um, uh, the project has overruns and the uh, a contractor comes back to the government to say, we need more money to finish the job. But the government controls the amount of money that it's going to spend in advance. With entitlements, it's not that way at all. The amount that the government ends up spending depends upon the number of people who come in to claim benefits and the amount that they are eligible to receive. And so if 40 million or 50 million people come in to claim Social Security benefits uh, and the benefits are about $1,500 a month, then the government will spend that amount of money. But if 60 million people show up, uh, then the government will spend 20% more money. And so in, in some sense, these entitlement programs violate sort of norms of budgeting, and they can quickly grow out of control. That is, it can become quickly the case that the amount that the government spends uh, far exceeds the amount that they expected to spend. And in fact, the amount that they spend is only known after the fact, uh, because they rarely know in advance how many people are going to end up qualifying under the rules uh, that they have set. So they're very, very different programs. But when you think about entitlement programs, they are among the most sensitive of programs in our budget uh, at the federal level. Think of programs like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, unemployment benefits, food stamps or supplemental nutrition assistance. Those programs are all entitlement programs. That is, individuals qualify based on their demographic and economic characteristics, uh, and they have a right to receive that benefit based upon those characteristics. The only thing I can really, the only thing I could think of when you were talking about how they don't know until later how much is going to be spent on a specific program just because it depends on how many people are eligible in a given year or how many people are there, or whatever, is the fact that no one would run their own personal budget that way because that is, that's just not a smart way to spend money. <laughs> Imagine if you had a family that had four or five, six children. And they said to the children, well, listen, um, uh, any of you can come in and ask for any amount of assistance up to $100 uh, each month. Uh, and if you don't come in, that's fine. But if you do come in, that, that's also fine. Uh, that would be a terrible way to run the household budget, would it not? No, it, it definitely just would be so horrible. And that's I feel like that's just what is going on, which doesn't seem like logical or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the reason, Juliet, that we have such a large uh, national debt 
Um, the national debt arises from the fact that um, government, the federal government, spends more each year than it takes in in tax revenues. And the federal budget works like a bank account. Uh, you're spending money from the, the account and you're bringing in money, let's say, from, from a job for your account. Uh, and um, if you spend more than what's in your uh, bank account, then you'll have to go out and borrow. And that borrowing is the amount that we add each year uh, to, the, to the national debt. And I have to say that these entitlements have been driving the debt upwards every year for the last uh, three uh, decades. Uh, we haven't balanced the budget since the late 1990s. And in the last 45 years, we've only balanced the budget five times. The rest of the time, we've run deficits. And the reason we've run deficits is not because of national defense spending. Uh, it's not because of a spending on international affairs. It's spending on entitlement programs. And they always invariably end up costing the budget more than what Congress expects. And hence, we run uh, deficits. You know, a lot of people say, well, no, 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 the deficit is a consequence of large spending on national defense, and we don't need to spend more on national defense. Well, I won't try to answer the question of whether we should spend more on national defense or not, but I'll tell you this, only one out of every six dollars of federal government spending is on defense. As you said in your introduction, Juliet, two-thirds of federal spending is on these entitlements, and that's where our fiscal problem is. You walked us through the history of these programs in your book. You wrote that, quote, 55% of U.S. households receive cash or an in-kind assistance from at least one major federal entitlement program. The $2.4 trillion the federal government currently spends annually on entitlements equals 75 wait, no, yeah, $7,500 for every man, woman, or child living in the United States, end quote. These numbers are bigger now, and they get bigger by the day, as you said, but that's a striking number, $7,500 per person. Over half of Americans receive money from the federal government, hence from other Americans. So what do you think are the consequences of the dependency on entitlement benefits? Well, there's two, two consequences. Um, but first, the statistics that you just um, cited um, have to be supplemented with a third that is drawn from those two. And that is less than half of all entitlement spending of that $2.4 which was a couple of years uh, ago, over half of that um, goes to people that are not in poverty to begin with, or less than half goes to individuals that are in poverty before the receipt of assistance. And so when you think about these programs, don't think about them as programs that are predominantly programs that assist the poor. Our entitlement system has grown into a huge monolith that provides checks to people 
that are far above uh, the poverty line. I think it's somewhere around six to seven hundred billion dollars of federal government entitlement assistance goes to individuals that are in the top 20 percent of the income distribution. That is the richest 20 percent of all households. And so if we're going to fix the problem, we want to keep that fact in mind that we don't have to cut programs for the poor in order to fix our entitlement problem. But you asked about the consequences of this large uh, expenditure. Well, there's two types of consequences. One is relating to individuals, and then one is relating more to the economy at large and then its impact on individuals. So the first impact is directly on individuals. When we give individuals assistance, as, as, as deserving as they may be, the assistance carries with it a disincentive for one to improve themselves. In the case of welfare assistance, unfortunately, when people receive assistance, they are certainly better off. But welfare in the way that we provide it creates a disincentive for people to invest in themselves and for people, for people to enter uh, the workforce. When we give individuals a promise of Social Security and Medicare benefits, we create an incentive for those individuals to save less during their working years to prepare for their retirement years. And so these adverse incentive effects of entitlement programs have to be factored in when we consider the efficacy of these programs. They have a benefit to be sure. We are helping millions of individuals. Uh, uh, we're alleviating poverty in a very important way for them. But at the same time, uh, we're creating disincentives for them to help themselves. The other consequence of entitlements comes through the large debt that we are uh, accumulating. Uh, today, the national debt exceeds our national income. It is a, we are in a territory already that represents a clear and present danger to our future fiscal health. Countries that have systematically run large deficits and have run up their debt have ultimately ended up with enormous economic problems, economic recessions, financial crises, and so forth. And if we continue on the road that we're on, we're going to end up seriously jeopardizing our economy uh, to a severe a set of economic recessions uh, and downturns. You have to ask yourself, when government borrows what, where does that money come from? And the answer is that it comes from people who would otherwise provide funds to investors. And so when the government borrows, it crowds out private investment. And private investment is the source of an improvement in our standards of living. So when you ask what are the consequences of the large run-up in entitlement spending. One is that if it's financed by issuing debt, 
uh, then we face the risk of, uh, of less uh, uh, growth in the future, uh, of large financial uh, risk of recession, uh, and generally lower standards of living. Of course, the government could finance the entitlement spending in another way. It could raise taxes. Um, and we know what the consequences of higher taxes are. Higher taxes also discourage investment. They discourage work. They discourage saving. And so these discouraging effects, when multiplied by uh, the 140 million people that are in the workforce today, um, have a deleterious effect on economic growth. Uh, they retard that growth. And in retarding that growth, they retard the future standard of living increase uh, that we have come to enjoy over the last uh, six to uh, 10 to 12 to 20 uh, decades of our history. Those consequences sound awful. And I mean, with knowing the consequences, I mean, you just said them, they're in your book, you can see them. You would think that the government knows this. And the original intent wasn't bad. It was it was a good intention. It was meant to help the poor. And in your book, you write that, quote, the amount the federal government spends each year on entitlement programs is five times the money necessary to lift every person out of poverty, end quote. Is that right? Yeah. Where where does the money go? If it's like it has good intentions, they have the money, uh, as you say, more money than is needed to help the poor. So what happens? So what happens is it's it's what I call um, how should I put it the equally worthy claim, and the way it works is as follows: when a new program, an entitlement program, is created, it's usually um, narrowly drawn in terms of its eligibility. And so it focuses on a group that's particularly worthy at the time of assistance. But when that entitlement is created, it brings forth some relentless forces that operate to expand the entitlement. And so after an entitlement is first created, what you find is that individuals and um, interest groups that represent individuals that are just outside of the eligibility circle or just have too much income or just not quite the right demographic to qualify for assistance, those groups start clamoring to be included as beneficiaries in the entitlement program. And Congress, faced with this political pressure that comes from the groups that represent these individuals or the individuals themselves, ends up eventually acquiescing. And they expand the entitlement to include that group. It's just an incremental expansion, just to include this particularly uh, newly worthy group. But all that does, Juliet, is bring another group of individuals closer to the eligibility boundary line. And they just lie outside it and they start clamoring for assistance themselves. 
Congress eventually acquiesces, and this process repeats itself until the programs get expanded far beyond what their original intentions were. And that's how we've gone from narrowly conceived programs uh, to programs that now uh, provide assistance to more than half the population. The vast majority of entitlement programs were justified originally on things like preventing poverty uh, or uh, providing a measure of financial security to individuals in their old age. Uh, And they've grown now into a program that, as you said, dominates the federal budget. More than half of all uh, households are now receiving some assistance. A good example of just how expansive these programs have been and why such a small fraction ends up going to the poor is Social Security and its sistership, Medicare. Those two programs provide assistance to senior citizens, regardless of their income, uh, and to uh, people who are disabled, regardless of their income. Um, The typical married couple who reaches retirement age this year will receive in Social Security and Medicare benefits over the remainder of their life benefits that have a cost of $1 million in present value terms. So it's as if the federal government is giving each couple that turns age 66, regardless of their income, a a check for a million dollars. This is now the state of affairs when the These programs were originally enacted. They were just to provide a small measure of economic security and health security to certain individuals in their old age. And so you can see just how they've how they've grown into something that is wholly unrelated to their original purpose. A million (laughs) dollars. That's so much money. That's I don't know. That's that's crazy. I have no idea how to even think of it. Well, and like I've never seen a million dollars. Well, I hope you will, and I hope all your listeners will too. But I hope they see it from their own hard-earned efforts rather than in the form of a check from the government. Um, to put it in a slightly different perspective, to show you how. Um, much these programs have grown. Um, The amount of assistance that the typical married couple will get at age 66 from Social Security and Medicare is about the same as the median income of households in the United States. Now, the median income of households in the United States is achieved by, by dividing the U.S. population of people under age 65 in half. And the people that are below that median are the lower half of people and the people that are in the upper half are the people above the median. Uh, And Social Security and Medicare each year gives this two-person household, on average, husband and wife, more money than is earned by the bottom half of the U.S. population of working households. Very generous program. 
Yeah, very, very generous. And I'm not quite sure how what I'm about to say relates. Well, I know it relates, but I don't know how it fits in, but this is kind of what this made me think about, so I'm going to go for it. In your book, you talk about some of the beneficiaries of the Revolutionary War Pension Program and of the Civil War Pension Program. And you talked about how there's still one Civil War pension recipient alive today, 150 years after the end of the Civil War. How is that possible? <laughs> as, you, as you go through your education, you're going to learn about the law of unintended consequences. And uh, the, this person that you mentioned, unfortunately, she just passed away uh, a couple, within the last couple of months. Uh, and, um, but she had received a, uh, a check from the United States government through the veterans program um, her, her entire life. Uh, she was, it's, a, it's actually a wonderful, wonderful story. Her father originally signed up on the Confederate side. So he was a member of the Confederate Army. And then halfway through the war, two thirds of the way through the war, he decided, no, this wasn't for him. And so he went AWOL. And he later signed up for the Union Army. Uh, and if you're in the Union Army at the time and you became disabled during your wartime service, you were eligible for disability payments uh, from the government. And that was a proper uh, proper thing for the government to do. If you were fighting to save your country and you got injured in the process, you would be eligible to be compensated for your service to the country. So he became, uh, after the war, he was not eligible. But Congress, responding to the equally worthy claim, kept expanding the group of eligible union veterans for these disability benefits. And finally, 45 years after the war had ended, it passed a disability bill that said that any union veteran could now receive a veteran's compensation payment for their service. And so it had extended this narrow group of individuals um, to a very broad group of individuals. So anybody who served in the military, uh, in the, sorry, in the Union uh, uh, Army, uh, Navy, uh, became eligible to receive benefits. So he received benefits somewhere around the first part of the, um, of the 20th century. And then in the 1920s, when he was in his 80s, I believe, he married a young lady who was in her 20s. And under the rules of the disability program, if he passed away, his wife would be entitled to receive a spousal benefit. They had a child. And the child was born in, I think it was 1930, somewhere around there, correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, when her mother passed away, she became eligible for a Civil War veterans pension. Uh, and that's the story 
of the young lady <laughs> who became eligible for a pension and continued receiving it up until a couple of months ago when she passed away. That is, I don't know. I feel like that is a perfect example. And I'm glad you included it in the book because it really puts it into perspective, especially, I mean, sadly, if she died a few months ago, but she was receiving Civil War pension benefits until a few months ago, which I don't know, the amount that it grew and it was, the benefit was set to only affect a small group of people within that time period. And that time period just ended. And that kind of leads me to what I'm, what I've also been thinking about and also the next phase of the expansion of the entitlement spending that came with the new deal, which is social security. Social security, if I'm not wrong, was the first entitlement program with no time period. It just had one or like a few requirements. And that wasn't, that was the only thing restricting it. It wasn't like, oh, in 2000, it's going to be done. It will keep going until the law is changed. So can you kind of explain how, what the effects of that shift Yes. So up until the New Deal, government assistance programs, entitlement programs, were confined to individuals that had performed some specific service for the government. So as we said, veterans who fought in uh, wars uh, to defend the country were eligible to receive some assistance. Uh, government employees were also uh, entitled to receive retirement benefits, but you had to have performed some particular service for your country. What the New Deal did was to expand that concept of assistance to individuals to individuals in the general population who had not performed any service for their country. And that was the Social Security program. It also then created the first welfare program. And as I indicated before, those programs had a very, very narrow focus. That is, it's, their purpose was to provide targeted assistance on individuals um, who uh, would be in need uh, in their retirement years or single moms uh, during their uh, younger years. Uh, and the result in both programs was just a gradual, steady expansion of eligibility rules until for Social Security, by the 1950s, everybody was covered. Uh, and, uh, and so all workers at that point were paying into the system, and all retirees were getting assistance from the system. Uh, and it just became a self-perpetuating uh, machine. Uh, and uh, Thomas Jefferson had warned us against such types of laws that would go from one generation to the next. Uh, and I think we're seeing the, the effects of, of a permanent program that just continues to grow and grow. Uh, there are bills in Congress now to further expand Social Security benefits and to further expand Medicare benefits, despite the fact, by the way, that both programs are in, are in financial uh, financial difficulty. 
Um, but the equally worthy claim is a phenomenon that uh, explains why Social Security went from a very small targeted program to one that covers every senior and provides seniors along with Medicare uh, benefits that are greater than the earnings of the average household or anybody below that average. The next phase in the expansion of entitlement programs happened in the 1960s with Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. During that period, Social Security was dramatically expanded, and then we saw the creation of government health care programs like Medicare and Medicaid. That was also the beginning of an era where federal government set out to fix poverty. Poverty had been traditionally more of a state issue, right? That's correct. You know, for for most of our history, from the very beginning of the Republic until the 1930s, um, welfare assistance or assistance to poor individuals, assistance to homeless individuals was provided at the local level. Local governments uh, felt that they knew best how to treat the poor, how to help the poor. Uh, very few of them adopted sort of blanket assistance to the poor because they recognized that not all poor people would benefit from a gift uh, from uh, their local treasury, that sometimes educational assistance should be provided, sometimes work assistance should be provided. And so they were better able to match the needs of the individuals uh, to the uh, assistance that was given. And then starting in the 1930s with the New Deal, the federal government began to step in. And the federal government told the states, we are not going to interfere with the way you provide assistance to your poor. We're simply going to help you finance those benefits. And so they set up a matching program where for every dollar the the state spent, the federal government would match a dollar uh, to that. And that lasted up until the Great Society. And the shift of the Great Society, as you said, Julia, was to um, have the federal government start writing the rules and regulations governing the provision of welfare programs by state and local governments. And it did it in two ways. One is it started using its financial assistance as a lever to get states to uh, adhere their poverty programs uh, to federal dictates. And so they said, if you uh, provide assistance, if you take our assistance, you must follow our rules. And of course, uh, most of the states went along uh, with that. And so gradually the federal government, uh, through uh, tying the rules to assistance, uh, began to exert more control over um, state and local programs. Uh, And then, of course, um, the courts also stepped in and started restricting the ability of state and local governments to write rules and declared that they must be uh, uniform with federal rules and so forth. And the result was, over this 10-year period, we, we went from a system where State and local governments had the flexibility to decide welfare rules and so forth to one where the federal government had created an individual entitlement to those benefits uh, at the federal level 
and anyone who met the federal slash now state requirements uh, um, would be eligible to receive uh, assistance. And of course, once it became an entitlement, uh, we could see the welfare rolls just uh, surge um, uh, to very, very large and unprecedented numbers. What is the biggest entitlement program today and what does it do and how much do we, well, I guess we being the federal government, spend on it every year? So the biggest is Social Security and it's almost a trillion dollars of our budget. Yes. The second biggest is Medicare. So when you think about, as we've talked so much about these entitlements and the money and everything and how little of it goes to the poor, remember, Social Security and Medicare go to anybody who reaches a particular age, age 65 for Medicare and 66 for Social Security, independent of their income. And so um, that's why we say that such a small fraction of federal assistance goes to actually reducing poverty because so much of it is through those two programs. And by the way, we haven't talked about how those programs are financed. The way those programs are financed is through payroll taxes that are levied on all workers today. So the payroll tax now is 15.2% on wages up to about, I think it's $130,000. And so it covers, that limit is, is covers about 90% of all, of all workers in the U.S. economy. And so who's paying for the assistance that Medicare and Social Security recipients are getting? This large amount of money, the million dollars over their lifetime. Uh, it's working people and they're paying 15% of every dollar that um, that one earns uh, in payroll taxes to finance those uh, benefits. Now, you'll hear some people say, well, no, 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 they really don't pay 15.2%. They only pay half of that because nominally half is paid by the individual and nominally half is paid by the employer. But for the way an economy works is that that half that is paid for nominally by the employer is actually paid by the employee through lower wages. And so the employer just lowers the worker's wages by 7.6% and pays that that worker's uh, Social Security benefits for them. And so when your audience thinks about Medicare and Social Security, and how they're financed, they have to remember that the money that's going to pay these benefits that are not related to need at all uh, are being paid for by families that are trying to, uh, workers that are trying to raise their families, buy a house, pay a mortgage, finance their health insurance, all those things that go along with um uh, people in their 20s and 30s and 40s uh, and 50s. That is a good thing to keep in mind. And I don't know, it makes me want to like stop working altogether just in rebellion. I just want to quit my job just because I know that. 
And I know I won't, but <laughs> there's a part of me that just has this want to do that. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about what these problems are and what causes these problems and who these things affect and everything. But how would we reform this? How would you go about reforming entitlement programs? Well, the uh, first thing I would tell your audience is get involved. Uh, in the early part of my life, I, I didn't spend much time thinking about public policy issues. Uh, but then uh, in my early 30s, uh, I did, and I became a, uh, a, um, uh, an official in the Reagan administration. I know that sounds like it was light years away. Most of your audience weren't even around when Ronald Reagan was, was president. But I learned the importance of trying to change the system from within, uh, not through a revolution, but to try to change it from within. Get involved and try to work uh, to, to fix the system. Don't try to achieve uh, results uh, all at once overnight. It rarely, rarely happens. But think about how you might change the programs over a long period of time. Uh, but get involved. Learn more about the programs uh, that you want to change uh, and, begin, uh, and begin the process of changing them. And, uh, you know, people tend to look down on American politics today. And I think with good reason, our political uh, leaders in Washington have not distinguished themselves uh, with uplifting performances. Um, but if we want to change the entitlement system, we've got to change the type of people that we're electing to Congress uh, and to um, uh, the White House. Uh, we've got to have individuals that are far more forward looking uh, what happens to members of Congress uh, and to presidents is, you know, they fall a prey to the fact that they are facing a reelection in two years or four years or six years. And that tends to make them short-sighted. Uh, the focus tends to be on the near-term and the long-term consequences of their decisions. Well, that's outside their electoral horizon. So they discount it as rational human beings uh, would. Uh, but as a consequence, what you get is the clamor for interest by interest groups for more assistance today tends to get a larger weight than the cost of that assistance uh, down the road. Um, and so we need to be electing officials that have far more uh, of a long term interest in the country's uh, health uh, and future uh, than what we've been enacting, who we've been enacting um, uh, in the last few decades. Finally, I want to ask you, what is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Well, I'm glad you limited it to one thing because there are <laughs> probably 5,000 things as I, as I think back on my life and what I thought I knew compared to what I know now. And actually, Juliet, if you were to ask me that question five years from now, I probably have another 5,000 things that I would say <laughs> that I thought I knew that I really uh, don't uh, uh, really have changed my mind on. But let me go back to when I was um, in, in, in high school and early college. At that time, I didn't think a lot about public policy. You know, other things uh, were much more important 
uh, in my life, my friends, my activities, and so forth. So I didn't give a lot of thought to um, to public policy uh, issues. When I did, it was at a very surface level. And my views on policy issues were dominated by my heart. I was uh, in high school and college when the Great Society got going. And it was a period of a significant amount of concern about the poor and the underclass. And the newspapers at the time, to the extent that I read them, opened up my eyes to the plight of the poor. And same thing with my uh, fellow classmates. Uh, And my view then was sort of a view that was born of emotion, of concern about the poor and how can we help them. It was a view of, of the heart. And so I found myself saying, yes, more nutrition assistance, yes to housing assistance, yes to medical assistance, yes to more income support. Um, My logical brain, which should have warned me about the adverse consequences of so much assistance and how government uh, would use that assistance, was maybe on vacation. My brain was somewhere somewhere else. And so my views were views of the heart, not of the head. And then later on, as I went through college uh, and graduated, and I learned more, I began to realize that there was a large cost that went along with the amount of assistance we were providing. That programs that were designed to help the poor too often became a trap. There were too many barriers that these programs erected for individuals that were receiving assistance to escape poverty. I know for single moms who were the focus of so much of the New Deal uh, policies, um, the message that the government programs created for them was, if you want to escape poverty, do not get married and do not get a job. Because if you do get married and get a job, you will lose the assistance that the government is giving you. And that was an enormously high price for an individual to pay. Uh, that guarantee of health care, that guarantee of nutrition assistance, the guarantee of income assistance, Uh, became a a barrier to self-improvement among individuals uh, and caused so many to lose dignity. And what we've ended up then is with a cycle of that poverty as it goes from one generation uh, to to the next. And so the the lesson I learned uh, and the change in my views really came from uh, using more of my head uh, to uh, to help me think about policy issues. The heart is extremely important and we never want to lose sight of that because ultimately we have these programs for a reason and that is to help those who are uh, unfortunate in life. And so we don't want to lose the heart, but we want to approach these programs with a head, with a logic, with a recognition that that there are adverse consequences associated with these programs, and we may end up providing the benefits in a way that harms individuals or inhibits their ability 
for self-sufficiency, which ultimately is the source of, of dignity. Um, and so I would say to your, to your audience, uh, as they approach these issues, keep the heart in there, but focus more uh, with your head uh, rather than less uh, with your head. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, as it is heart-wrenching to see people going through poverty, people struggling with unemployment, it is even more heart-wrenching to know that the efforts that our government takes to help them actually hurts them. And that's just so it's just so sad. So, I don't know. I think it's a really good thing to keep in mind and also to always look out because you will always change your mind and you will always realize it's something that you thought may not be exactly as it seems. And I like that you said like 5,000 different things because even at this point in my life, I see so many things where I'm like, oh, I thought that, but I realized that that's wrong. I think, I don't know. I ask this question because I like to find out like how other people identify the mistakes or misconceptions that they've had, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, here's an odd thought. If you think about life as a learning process, uh, that's a good way to think about it. You're constantly learning over your lifetime. Uh, and part of what you learn is um, that you, your prior views were not so well-founded <laughs> and often very, very wrong. And so, uh, knowing that um, you have changed your views on things as a result of uh, knowledge that you've acquired uh, is a good thing. And it's a reminder that um, you, you have been acquiring knowledge and you are engaging in a lifelong uh, learning process. It's not something to be ashamed of, uh, the fact that you may have changed your mind on something, uh, so long as you, of course, uh, have good, solid reasons that come from your your learning process uh, for doing so. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. This was such an interesting conversation. I've learned so much and there's still so much in your book that we haven't even talked about. I mean, I feel like I have to go back and read it again because I feel like I couldn't fully absorb the first time. And I highly recommend that all my listeners go and read it. It's very interesting and you will definitely learn a lot. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. Well, thank you, Juliet. I've enjoyed it uh, immensely. Uh, and uh, I will be tuning in from here on out to listen to your <laughs> podcast and uh, your future guests. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'm honored. <laughs>